If you notice on the the, the screens, uh, there's it says what just happened. And if you are just joining us, we have just finished last week looking at in John chapter 19 the cross of Christ. And we read about the crucifixion. And first, remember, we just simply read through it. And as we took communion last Sunday, we went through the work of the cross. We just went through the whole narrative. And then we stopped and came to the Lord's table. And then asking the Lord to do that work in us, we simply reflected on what that means. I spent the rest of the time kind of unpacking the, the passage there uh, up to verse 30 in, uh, in John 19. And as I was in prayer this week, I had a different, it's one of those times every now and then it's like, I have my message that I want to do and the Lord has his. <laughs> as I was in prayer this week about teaching this morning, uh, I, I was laughing with some of the guys who went to a men's conference yesterday. We had a great time. Uh, laughing with some of them, I said, yeah, we're going to be talking about the cross tomorrow, and we might even get back to the Gospel of John. Uh, because I just feel very strongly that we need to stop and ask ourselves, as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ, as we consider the work of redemption that was done, what just happened? I always try to imagine myself, I, when, I, when I'm preparing, I, and, and in my own personal time, I love to sort of insert myself into the text and say, Lord, as I look around, what's going on here? And there, think about the stunned silence of the crowd as Jesus gave up his spirit and bowed his head and died. Let go of his life. He says in the Gospels that, I laid down my life, and I also have the power not just to, to lay it down, but I have the, the power to pick it back up. We'll look at that in the resurrection. But here, now, in this place of between the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, it, we do well, folks, to stop. There was so much going on on that cross. We do well to stop and to ask ourselves, what just happened? Because... What happened decides everything about you and about your soul as relates to eternity, as relates to the power of God being unleashed in your life or not. Very sobering, very serious things going on here. And, and so we look at this. I, I want to normally I take uh, a few passages and teach several points. I'm going to do that in one respect this morning, but I'm also going to take a number of passages to drive home one point. And we'll get to that as we go. Uh, but I want to look at what the vicarious atonement is. Now, if, if you're new to Christianity, you don't have to worry about the big words and all of that, but I pray you do understand their meaning, meaning because uh, this, the doctrines that are central to orthodox, historic Christianity, guys and I were... After the men's conference, the guys that had ridden with me came in and hung out at my house for a while after we got back into town. And, and one of them said, well, what does orthodox mean? And, and simply, it's a, it's a Latin term that means straight glory. And when we look at orthodox doctrines of Christianity, it's the straight historic doctrines, the, the things that establish what our faith and practice is. 
And, and I don't care. I, I told a church that I was a pastor in years ago, we were, I was talking and teaching on baptism. And, and I said, you know what? I'll baptize you with a squirt gun if you want. And, and, and the point in that was not trying to make silliness out of baptism, but saying that's a minor doctrine. It's not a doctrine that's essential to salvation. So when we talk about doctrines that are essential to salvation, those are the big guns. Those are the ones that you will find an argument with me on. Because defending the faith, defending God's word, defending the work is all important. So as I looked at what does it mean, this vicarious atonement, because that's the technical term for what happened on the cross. But we're going to get way past the technical stuff, and we're going to get very practical towards the end of the message today. But vicarious, it's, it's from a Latin word, vicarius, uh, and, and it means a substitute. It means one to stand in the place of another. And we know that the Lord Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, on purpose. He, didn't, he was in control of everything, every moment. He was never out of control. They, when they arrested him, it was right after he knocked them all over. Remember, we looked at that. He did not have a loss of control in this thing. He signed up. He signed up for the cross. And so he knew that he was going to stand in the place of you and me and wear the wrath of God for our sin. So that's the vicarious work of Christ. The atonement, literally, the word atonement means at one mint. It's where you take two estranged parties and you bring them together. In this case, God and man. Uh, in Job chapter 9, Job prophetically, I mean the first book of the Bible that was written, Job, uh, all the way back then he says, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand upon us both. That is the atoning work that Job prophetically didn't know what he was talking about. I mean he did, but he didn't but that God revealed to him way back that there would be a need to bring man and God together because I've mentioned it many times before, if you look at the Bible as a whole, the overarching theme of the Bible is redemption. It's God starts by creating man, he creates the earth and creates this paradisical glory in the Garden of Eden, and it doesn't take long at all for man to fall into sin, Adam and Eve. And at that point... Everything forward from there is the work of God redeeming mankind, redeeming this earth, purchasing us with his blood on that cross. I'm going to go through seven things that Jesus accomplished on the cross this morning. As we look at these things, I want to encourage you to just make it personal. Because these are very personal things. They are, they, yes, they're doctrinal, but oh, folks, don't get locked up in just understanding the doctrine. Understand what it means to you personally. Because these are powerful, powerful truths. So I'm going to look at, I've made some slides up for these, and what we're going to talk about, and, and many of them are very basic understandings, but they are not without great power in our lives. And so as we look, we're going to look first at sins forgiven. That when Jesus went to the cross, he, he gained the ability by purchasing us with his blood 
for our sins to be forgiven. And his, our sins are forgiven. They're not just taken out of the way. That's the old covenant. That's the law. The law covered sin, but it never eliminated it. In Acts chapter 3, um, verse 19, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, standing before a huge crowd in Jerusalem, preaches the gospel right after the Holy Spirit had get, been given it, and the Holy Spirit had come upon them and given them power, just as Jesus had promised. And he says in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. So what Peter is doing there is the very first time that he preaches the gospel after the cross, and this is like six and a half weeks or so out from the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit's given, he stands up and he preaches. This is the same guy that we were looking at very recently was warming his hands by the enemy's fire and denying the Lord. Uh, and we'll, in, in, in the, our studies coming up, we'll look at his being utterly pardoned by Jesus himself for the denial that he had had. So, but as we look at this, I want you guys to understand when we're talking about sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's something you earn. So the only thing we really can earn in God's economy is death. But it doesn't stop there in Romans 6.23. He says, but, love that word, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that a primary function of the cross, a primary purpose of Jesus going to that cross was to be able to forgive sin. Yes, sins, plural, but sin, singular. Because man's nature coming out of that garden, man's nature is by, we are by nature corrupt. We are by nature utterly depraved. And our deprav depravity shows up in acts that we commit that we call sins. But the sins are a manifestation of a, of a heart issue, a heart condition. And that sin nature that we have, we see in God's word, was done away for all practical purposes for any who would come. Yes, these things are appropriated by faith. You have to believe it in order for it to come to have power in your life. And yet what he did there, hanging on that cross, when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He wasn't just talking about the guys standing around. He's talking about you, talking about me. Powerful truth, powerful truth. And if you don't look at that as powerful, you perhaps don't understand your own depravity. I know. It's hard. Self -ex honest self-examination, folks, sometimes is the hardest thing that we can do to actually see how far short we fall. Uh, talking yesterday with the guys, it, you know, you think about the basis of God's judgment, and we'll look at that here. Uh, the basis of his judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. How far do you get into the day before you blow it? Before you do something that would, were it not for the atoning work, the blood of Christ, something that would separate you from God for eternity, forever. Sobering truth. Second thing I want to look at this morning is wrath removed. 
I love the book of Romans. It's, you know, I've mentioned before, if the New Testament was a mountain range, I would see Romans as the highest mountain. Romans 8, life in the spirit, the highest peak on the highest mountain. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And in Romans chapter 2, the first three chapters from, from chapter 1, verse 1, until chapter 2, verse 20, I believe it is, the Apostle Paul goes through what I refer to as the great indictment. You know what an indictment is? Like when a grand jury gets together and they weigh the evidence and they find that there is cause to indict someone, to bring them to trial, to bring charges against them. And in Romans, the first three chapters, we see the great indictment of humanity. Nobody gets off. You can't look at that person that's a little further in the hole than you and say, well, look at how bad they are. Because when you understand, again, you understand your own depravity. You understand that God's wrath is poured out prior to coming to Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and in the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Again, what is a deed? It's something you do. Again, that principle, the only thing that I can do is throw myself on the mercy of God. Because I literally, prior to giving my heart to Jesus, store up wrath. I'm actually adding wrath, God's wrath, God's holy, righteous anger to my account. That's bad news. But you know what? You can't understand what the good news is adequately until you see how really, really, really bad the bad news is, and the bad news is, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And so looking at that, you, there, he also says your impenitent heart there. And, and we read that a moment ago, too. He's talking about coming to repentance so that you could enjoy refreshing times in the Lord. There is something that we supply, and it's simply to agree with God. And when I come to a place of agreeing with God, Lord, there is no good thing that dwells in me. No, nothing that, that dwells in me is good. I, I, I see how far short I fall. And yet I know that you are my sufficiency. I know that you have the answers to these things I wrestle with in my life. I know that you are the one that comforts me when I'm going through trials and when my heart is just heavy. I know that you're the one. And the way that you appropriate that, folks, is you say, you know what? I'm turning from that old life, from that life that stores up wrath. I'm turning from that life that says, I don't really care about God. Oh, I'm turning from that. Oh, that religious stuff. Yeah, that's for weak people. Hogwash. It's for you. It's for me. Because we are by nature sinful. And we by nature store up wrath. But there's good news. Uh, in Romans chapter 5. Paul, writing about people who have made that transaction, who have repented of sin, have turned from the old life, embraced Christ. He says, much more than now, having been justified by his blood. In other words, just as if I'd never sinned. We shall be saved from wrath through him. I, again, we've got to see ourselves in this, folks. We've got to see we got to see how far off the mark we are before we can really, truly appreciate the power of the cross. He didn't go because he wanted to. He went because he had to. There was no other way to purchase my soul. There was no other way. It was that 
bad. The third thing we see here is limitless grace. Limitless grace. A working definition of grace is unmerited favor. I don't deserve the mercy, the compassion, the grace of God to be poured out on my life, but I will absolutely take every bit of it that is coming. And did you know that the moment that you first believe you got all of the grace you're ever going to need, you received all of the grace that God would, would lavish? He says, he uses words like lavish. Uh, we saw that video this morning. He lavishes his grace on us. He pours it out in such measure that we can't ever out-sin his grace. He says, your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. And now I don't call you a servant. I call you a friend. I call you a brother. And when Jesus says that, that has weight. It's because of his grace. It's because he says, I love you, not based on what you do, not based on your performance, not based on how good you can be or how bad you've been, but I love you based on who I am. Because God is love. And, and as a loving God, the whole purpose he went was to pour out his love and to pour out his grace. And he says, just come, bathe in my grace, bask in my grace, know that you... I know you struggle. And folks, let's be real this morning. We're not here so we can have a Sunday face and a Sunday. And I'm not opposed to that. I mean, uh, you know, that's fine. But we struggle, don't we? We struggle in areas of our lives. The Holy Spirit is faithful as we're tuned into the work of the Spirit in our lives. He's faithful to bring conviction when conviction needs to flow. Because we don't have everything wired. We don't have everything nailed down. We don't have it all together. The church is a hospital. And it's a good thing to be here. It's a good thing to be encouraged. It's a good thing to have a deeper, more full understanding of the working of God's grace in my life. He says in Romans chapter 5, uh, he says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The Greek there is really interesting. It says where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It, it covers over. It, you can't out-sin God's grace. If you have been added to the family, if you've been added to Christ, if you truly have a working relationship with him based in faith, you've believed this stuff, and now by faith you appropriate it in your life, you're in his you're in his hand. You can't outsin that. You can't. That's why he says, of those that you've given me, Father, I haven't lost any. Because it's not based on you. It's based on him. Wonderful. Limitless grace. We might get to the Gospel of John. I'm not sure. The fourth thing that we're looking at this morning as we look at the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross is death defeated. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death has been taken away. Because eternal life has been guaranteed, guaranteed to any who will come. 
He also says in 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism in the New Testament for death, for physical death. Not that that person's soul has died, but for the death of their body. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, remember we're talking about that, this goes all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis. Because of the fall, because of our corrupt nature, because of our being separated from God. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's good news. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, the firstborn of the resurrection, the Bible tells us, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So death has been defeated. Do you really believe that? I mean, do you believe? Because as I understand that, I don't fear death. I literally have come to a place, and I praise God, I don't fear death. I'm not wild about dying. I mean, that sounds like it kind of sucks. I don't want to die, but I don't fear death. And for good reason. Because my life is hidden in him. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He has overcome death. How do I know? Because he rose from the dead. His sacrifice was accepted. And now, by simple faith in him, I don't have to fear death. I, I know that my soul will go on forever. At one point, I will shed this body, and I'll get a new one. I'll get a glorified body. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, too. I'd love to teach these things all the way through. But, I mean, we could spend hours on each one of these doctrines, on each one of these understandings of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But I want to encapsulate this because I want to make a point. So we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear, we don't have to fear dying. I remember um, sitting under Pastor Chuck Smith uh, at Bible College one day, and he was talking about a guy in his church that had a terminal illness. And they all went to the hospital, and one of the worship leaders from the church went up there too and was playing the guitar and um, this guy was just filled with joy. He knew that he was at the end of this life. And they were singing a worship song, and this guy was singing with them when he went to heaven. In that moment, his life was translated from here to there, and he entered heaven literally singing. I hope I have the opportunity to do that. I mean, that just was so cool. I love thinking about that guy when I think about Death having been conquered, Jesus conquered death. It no longer has a grip on me. It's lost its sting. The fifth thing I want to look at here is that we're delivered from hell. Now, everybody would like to be delivered. I mean, I had a, a friend when I was in my 20s, and this guy, you know, he was a druggie, and, and he was a real nice guy. He was just self-medicating because there's some real problems in his life, and Ended up taking his life later. Uh, but he would laugh and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get to hell. All my buddies will be there. And I, 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 even then, I wasn't a believer. Good little Mormon boy. But I, I wasn't a believer. And I would think, that's just kind of sick. Because hell is real. And you don't want to go there. In John chapter 3, verse 16, that 
oh so famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him simply put their trust in him, wouldn't die, but would live forever. He would be saved from hell. In verse 17, he says, For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Condemned to what? Condemned to hell. Let's not mince words. I will not side with some of the, the preachers out there who don't like the fact that hell is taught in the Bible. I wish it wasn't. I get uncomfortable when I talk about it. I'm just being transparent with you. But that is the place that's reserved for anyone who does not appropriate the work of the cross. Period. End of story. And yet we've been delivered from that. We've been delivered from the clutches of Satan himself. We've been delivered from the jaws of hell and seated in the heavenlies. Our life has been hidden in him. Seated in the heavenlies. Our, our name written in the book of life. You can't go backwards on that. Yeah, I believe that if you're saved, don't... Uh, somebody asked me not too long ago, uh, having breakfast with one of the brothers here, and I said, well, how, what do you feel about eternal security? And I said, well, you know, what I tell people in our church is don't ask me about yours. As for me, I'm secure eternally. And, and because the Bible says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what does that mean? What it means is get to a place where you are secure, where you know that your soul is secure, that your life is hidden in him. You know that you've appropriated the work of the cross. You don't have to worry about that ever again. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't those that walk away. And I, I'm not going to get into a debate on that whole deal because we were in our men's group a couple Thursdays ago. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 6 where there's some very hard-hitting things that talk about what happens when somebody is apostate. And I'm not talking about somebody that struggles with sin. If you're a believer and you struggle with sin, that doesn't nullify the fact that you're going to heaven. It means you're struggling with sin. Just like in the video we looked at this morning, about a man struggling with sin and then realizing just the power of the love of God poured out. That's a good thing. Because when you're struggling and there's a consciousness of it, that's a good thing. That means that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction into your life. I'm talking about the guy that says, I don't want Jesus. I don't want anything. To do. Maybe I gave my life to him as a teenager, but now I want it back. That's apostasy. That's different than struggling with sin. And so we have literally been delivered from hell through simple faith in the work of the cross. The sixth thing I want to look at here is healed. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, and Jesus went all about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Something that's interesting, there is some bad teaching out there that basically reduces God to what I refer to as a cosmic bellhop. He's there to do my bidding. 
I command that you be healed in Jesus' name. I, yep, I, I, that sounds pretty good. I should start a television show. Seriously, guys, I mean, when you see charlatans out there that are talking about God always healing, and in, when he doesn't, it's not his fault, it's yours. You didn't have enough faith. Horrible doctrine. Horrible teaching. Puts people under condemnation. No, God's will is to heal, and he will heal every disease. There are just some that he won't heal until we shed this body. You know, I mean, the most extreme case, he rose Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died of something, but he lived to die again. And, and so don't tell me that God is obligated to do physical healing. You know, it. In the, at the pool of Bethesda, we were talking about this with the guys yesterday, when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, here in the Gospel of John, there in the Gospel of John, because we're not there yet this morning, but when he went to the pool of Bethesda, he walked in, it says there was a multitude of people who were infirmed with various illnesses. A multitude, that's a lot. It's kind of a Bible word for lots of people. And he walks in there, and he walks up to one guy, and he says, take up your pallet and walk. The guy does. He's healed. Jesus turns around and walks out. Oh, but pastor, he was obligated to heal. Maybe he went back. No. He's sovereign. You guys understand the sovereignty of God when it comes to healing? Sovereign means it's his ball. It's his ball game. He makes the rules. We don't have a choice. All right? You can't reduce him to lower than us. You realize that when we do that, we're putting God in subjection to our own ability to reason, and that's a fallen ability to reason, I might add. No, let him be God. He sovereignly chooses who he will heal, and he sovereignly chooses who he won't. In Revelation 21.4, though, the Bible tells us God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Praise God. This life is tough and I'm not trying to be hard-hearted about illness here. My heart goes out uh, to Jennifer's mom and dealing with this at at a young age with these heart problems where you know, she's got to have this valve and the whole deal. I mean, and we've been praying for her. And, and I know people, I know that some of you are, are struggling with various degrees of illness. From, from, you know, my wife feeling, having an upset tummy this morning to people that are looking at, is this, is this it? And we are to pray believing, to pray for healing. And the Bible says that if is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church because the prayers of a righteous man avail much. It's not my righteousness, it's his. And he's providing a point of contact for the release of faith that healing could come. Should God sovereignly choose to do that? Make room for the sovereignty of God in your prayer for healing. If you do that, you will never get tumbled by some of the garbage that's going around out there that puts it on you if he doesn't. The last thing is Isaiah 53.5, as we're talking about healed, healing, 
says, but he, he was wounded. This is Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. Okay? It says, Jesus, he is speaking prophetically of the person and the work of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You guys know me. If you want to understand what a text is saying, and I've heard this misquoted so many times by well-intentioned people, and some not so well-intentioned, I might add, by his stripes we are healed is not a reference, in, uh, in the way that I see this, it's not a reference to physical healing. He's talking about being wounded for our transgressions, being bruised for our iniquities, and, and by his stripes we are healed. Healed from what? Sin and the effects of it. I don't see physical healing in that. Does that mean that God doesn't heal? No, of course not. He is in the healing business. He loves to heal his people. But it's a sovereign act. It's something that he chooses to do out of his sovereign will. And as we yield to that, we can have peace. Yes, he has come to heal us from that disease called sin. And I'm not talking about a disease like I caught it, I can't help it. But I do have a nature that, you know what, I, and, and I hear people all the time saying, well, look at what that person was doing. And, and I sometimes I'll say it, sometimes I'll just think it, and I'll think, well, they're only being faithful to the only nature that they know. They're being faithful to that nature of sin that manifests in deeds. And, and, and truly, that's what it is. But Jesus came, went by his stripes we were healed. He came that we would not be at the effect of sin, that we don't have to sin, that this divine trans transaction, that if you look at man as body, soul, and spirit, it's called a trichotomy, and there's some debate about that. So what? It's my Bible study. Um, but seriously, it's, if you look at man as being body, soul, and spirit, that at the moment of my conversion, I'm made spiritually alive. The Bible calls it regeneration. And no longer am I led around by the lusts and by the appetites of my body. That takes the lower place because the Holy Spirit, by communion, by, by bearing witness to my spirit, by making me alive, I am now a spiritually oriented man. I am now spirit, soul, body. I don't have to obey its lusts. I have the power of God working within me. I have his spirit showing me, convicting me, letting me know that I don't have to go that way. I can yield and he will never allow me be, to be tempted beyond what I'm able. He will always offer a door. He'll offer a way out. We don't always take it, do we? And yet it's there. It's part of what he accomplished at the cross. I have been delivered from the power of sin. It, you know, I've been delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. I've been delivered from the power of sin, which is to not have a life that's just totally compromised. And one day, as I read in Revelation, one day I'll be delivered from the presence of sin. That's good news. That's the heart of the gospel. The seventh thing I want to look at here is eternity assured. As I mentioned, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him would not perish, 
but have life forever. You ever think about that? I remember as a young Christian, the day I realized that eternity wasn't a whole bunch of days. Because we think that way. Our brains are wired. I mean, we look at time. I mean, and you think about you really you put yourself like sort of out there in space and, and look at this little chunk of rock that called Earth. It is spinning in a circle around this kind of medium-sized star that's in a galaxy that has billions of stars. That's in a galactic cluster that has billions of galactic clusters and galaxies in it. That's part of the universe that is, you know, we measure the universe by how far we can see across it at that time. It's grown a lot in my life. Not really. It's just men's understanding's grown. But the point is, is that, and we actually measure time by this little ear, 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 ear thing that's going on. And once a year, we go around this little star. We call that a year. Okay, that's it. Now it's a new year. Let's make some resolution. All that. So my point is, is time is a construct of God's. I talked about that last week. But the point about that is, is that it's not eternity. Eternity is God is outside of time. To just be in the presence of the Lord forever. I can't wait. I can't wait. And that's assured by the cross. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon, in his wisdom, he wrote that, that God has put eternity into our hearts. Uh, and he says, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. In other words, we are finite beings. And for us to try to imagine eternity, good luck with that. It's infinite. There, it has, God has no beginning, no end. He's self-existent. That's a doctrine. He, is self, he exists because he exists. He's the only being in all that there is that has existed before time, before anything. He exists. He is self-existent. And he says, where I am, I'm going to pull you into that place because that's the real realm. This time-space continuum that we live in here, I've likened it to a goldfish bowl in the middle of the room. You buy a goldfish, you put on a little stand, you know, you got this little bowl there, and the fish is kind of there looking out with his mouth, you know, doing that, what goldfish do. And if we were that goldfish in the bowl, that would be like what we see. We see through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says we see through the glass dimly, kind of distorted. We see sort of the rest of the room, but our life in this realm is lived out in the fishbowl. It doesn't mean it's not important. It is. But what it means is when you try to get some perspective on this thing, you realize that, that when he has assured us of eternity, he's saying, you know what? Real life is the rest of the room. When you're with me, when you're in my presence, when you're not bound to time, when you have a perfected body that is designed for eternity, I can't wait. Chuck Smith said one day, he said, I can't wait to take the universal tour. And, and, and that's true because it's, it's, we can't conceive in our, in our finite frames. We really can't conceive what heaven is. But we know it's going to be good. It's going to be beyond good. It's going to be beyond anything that we could imagine. And Jesus did that at the cross. He assured eternity for any who would come. 
In John chapter 11, Jesus, his, his friend Lazarus had died. And, and Martha, his sister, sees him when he's on the road. And he, she comes out and meets him. And she starts saying, you know, Lord, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have, my brother wouldn't have died. And he doesn't really respond to that. But what he does say is this. He says, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, physically, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection is not a doctrine. Yes, it is, but it's, it's more than that. The resurrection is a person. Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to talk about the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. And I am, by the way, the life. You want to be resurrected? You want real life? You want life outside the fishbowl? Trust me. Put your faith in me. And then he went on from that point and did that through his vicarious atonement on the cross. Now, that's the seven things I wanted to talk to you guys about this morning, but I want to talk about one more because all of these things are critically important in our understanding, aren't they? They're things that Jesus accomplished. I mean, they're, they're reasons he went to the cross, but they're not the reason. Now, I'm not underplaying any of these. It's very important that we have an adequate understanding of what's going on, what happened, what the transaction was, what just happened on the cross. And yet, if I were to put a circle around all of these things, kind of like that slide that I made, um, and we have sins, wrath, grace, death, hell, healing in eternity, all things that were absolutely accomplished through the work of Christ at the cross, every one of them. But there's something missing. There's something missing. So I've got a question mark on the next slide. You can go to it if you want. There you go. We need to understand those things, and I'll get to why in a minute. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That he might bring us to God. Look at every one of these things again. Why did he, why do you want your sins forgiven? Why would he die to forgive sins? Because no sinful flesh will be in God's presence. That had to happen. He forgave sins that he could bring you to God. God's wrath had to be satisfied. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He was experiencing somehow, I mentioned before, th this tearing that, that was in God that, that 
as the Father turned his back on the Son and placed the sins of humanity on him and the penalty and the wrath for them as he became the propitiate, the one who wore our sins, he had to do it so that his wrath would be rolled away by anyone who came to believe in him. Why? To bring us to God. To open the door to God. Grace. Amazing, wonderful grace. And I'm not just saying that because it's a song. The grace of God had to be poured out because there is absolutely no way under heaven that you could do one thing in your own power to get to God. It had to be on the basis of his unmerited favor. I love you because of who I am, not because you're all that lovable. You might be in human terms. But you need, we need, brothers and sisters, we need the grace of God on our lives. We can't function without it. We are without hope and we are cast away. We are utterly in despair without the grace of God covering us. Past, present, future. He didn't die for the sins you committed yesterday and now you're on your own. And now you walk around with a little dark cloud over your head because you've blown it. If his conviction is on your life, do something about it. The minute that you, by faith, appropriate that, he'll meet you in the act. I guarantee he will meet you in the act. I love the story of the man with the withered hand because Jesus tells one of the most profound things that he ever taught. And he goes up to a guy and it says in the Bible, it says this guy had a withered hand. It was withered from birth. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, stretch out your hand. And folks, we read the Bible. We know that Jesus is going to do something really cool and all that. This guy had no point of reference. This rabbi walks up to him and says, stretch out your hand. And he could have said, yeah, right. Go pick on somebody else. That would have been my response if somebody walked up to me and knew that I had a disability and was telling me, hey, you know, Take care of it. But it says that the guy stretched. He began. The, the text says he began to stretch out his hand. And, and just the faith necessary to begin to straight, stretch out his hand, the, the, the narrative there tells us that his hand was made whole. That the moment that he employed faith, the moment that he said, you know, maybe there's something different about this guy. I think I need to at least try to stretch, stretch out my hand. God made him whole. He met him in the act. And brothers and sisters, he will meet you there. Over 3,000 promises of God in God's word. Not one of them is not without you being the initiator of simply stepping out in faith. Yes, he'll do it. He guarantees it. Look at Israel. All through the Old Testament, when, when he brought the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, there were still a lot of obstacles in the land, a lot of enemies in the land, a lot of hostile people. He said, you go attack them, and I'll give you the victory. He didn't say, okay, I'm just going to say a word, and they're all going to fall over dead and go move into their houses. He could have done that, but he didn't. Because there's some participation he wants from us. The just shall live by faith. You look at the book of Romans, it starts with what's called the obedience of faith. It ends with what's called, the, with the same statement, the obedience of faith, and everything in between. It's appropriated by faith. That's why John says in this gospel, he, the, the, the evangelist of the pastor, 
John, writes this and says, that you may believe. Why is that so important? Because you're not going to get anywhere unless you believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's what the Bible says. He overcame death. Why? To bring us to God. He nullified the effects of hell. To which, by the way, each of us were headed prior to Christ. And if you don't know Christ this morning, take care of it. This is serious stuff. Simply turn from the old life, as we've seen in this today. Repent. It's, just a, it's a big word, but it simply means change your mind. Change your mind about God. Step into his kingdom and walk forward confidently with him. And he will be with you. He will pour out his spirit on your life. And you will not even have to try to see things start to shift and change in your own heart. He brought healing. Healing from sin. Absolutely. Why? To bring you to God. Every one of these things is answered by that. He put eternity in your heart. A desire, that God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill, folks. He put that in our hearts. And if there's an emptiness in your heart, perhaps you're not walking with him in the deeper places. Don't allow him to be relegated to the position of a religious mascot in your life. We might as well put a flag on the stage and put Jesus on the flag. Has no effect. But allow him to be the living Lord of your life. Why? Because he wants to bring you to God. It's not about having just a doctrinal understanding. These are wonderful, amazing, important things to understand. Every one of them. But realize that there is a common end to each. And it's to bring us to our Father. The Spirit within us, it says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit within us cries out, Abba. Father, Papa, intimate term, wonderful term, because what's in, intimated by that is a relationship, and that's what this is about. It's Yeah, we want to understand the, the faith that we have. We want to understand why we believe what we believe, and that's what these things do. They illustrate why we believe what we believe, and yet we've got to take it to that next place. We've got to take it to the next step. They're all designed to take us to God that we might know him. Because he already knows us. To know God. To commune with him. You realize he desires fellowship with you. He wants to commune with you. He knows all about you and he loves you anyway. That's what he does with me. I, I, and I, I don't mean that be insulting, but you know, you've got you to gotta get in touch with your own depravity. You've got to get in touch with your own sin. You've got to get in touch with how you are by nature apart from God in order for it to really become utterly attractive to be connected to him. He's called us to love and to be loved by God. That's what this is about. I'll close with this thought. 
And no, we're not getting to the Gospel of John this morning. Next week. There's always next week. I love this. It's like, you know, you teach verse by verse, you get to start and stop where you want. Because um, we don't typically do topical studies. It's kind of a topical, but it's really, it's in line with what we've been studying. Because, you, guys, we've got to stop. We just taught on the resurrection last week, and the whole point for this message is, what just happened? What was that that went on? I'll tell you what just happened. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what happened. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says this, Let us therefore come boldly. Therefore what? Therefore because we have been brought near. Because Jesus brought us to God. Okay, on that basis, then what is the next step? Here's what it is. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The veil, when Jesus went to the cross, and where we'll pick up next week, we're going to go to Matthew 27 for a few minutes, because from the time when Jesus said, Father, uh, it is finished, you know, and, and he gave up his spirit. Uh, it says that the veil was torn in the temple from the top down. And the earth quaked and darkness was over the land. I mean, it's a powerful, fantastic scene, and I don't want to miss it. And, and we'll pick up there next time, but I want to start, or I want to finish here before we'll pick up there. And, and the veil was torn. Do you know what that means? That veil was there. Ever since God said, I want to have a place to dwell among men, but because I'm holy, implied, and you're not, there has to be a separation between you and me. All the way back to the tabernacle, that tent that they carried, they packed around in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they set it up in Israel, and, and it served until Solomon built the temple, and then he built his temple, and when he put the temple in, there was the holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And at that time, it was like a 70-foot veil. And that got thrashed by the Babylonians. And then this guy, Zerubbabel, comes in and he rebuilds it. And then that gets thrashed. And then King Herod, 46 years before Jesus walked onto the scene, started building this new temple. And Herod's temple was a magnificent building. And it had a 70-foot veil. There wasn't any Ark anymore because that disappeared when the Babylonians attacked. But... The point is, is the veil was there symbolically to show that because of God's holiness, there had to be a separation between him and man. There's no need for that on this side of the cross. Jesus died and the veil was torn, signifying that now full, complete, loving, wonderful, powerful access to God himself is available to man. That's what happened. Jesus died for all of these things. But brothers and sisters, if you miss it, don't miss it. He died that you could have this love relationship with him. He died to bring you to God. It's the simplest of all of the things I've talked about this morning. And yet it's the most profound and it's the most powerful. Because the end of all of those doctrinal things that we understand the end of those is Christ bringing us to the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord.